Yes, you can hear by the sound that this is another walk and talk episode of Sweathead. I think that's becoming the official name. Um, my name's Mark Pollard. If you're new to this, is what happens. I gather a few questions from people from Twitter, email, the Sweathead community on Facebook, through DMs, through Instagram story questions, and then I go for a walk today with Central Park. It's Saturday and it's a beautiful day. I've got to cherish these moments family's active I've got I've got one little person on the uh, the other side of the, the country in a soccer tournament and uh, another one in on this side of the continent getting ready for some performance type stuff so that gives me a little bit of time during the day which is actually quite unusual because with all the activities and the schedules uh, we don't actually get that many weekends where we don't have a lot on <clears throat> it's kind of cool so today I'm mostly going to f- focus at the encouragement of uh, Gillian Ryford in South Africa and Shane O'Leary I woke up and there was a little encouragement in my notifications about doing these strange walk and talks which are essentially a stream of consciousness writing where there's not well stream of consciousness talking where there isn't really a structure although I will I might do one of these with a series of questions at hand from other people or a topic and so today we're largely going to talk about writing creative briefs before that, maybe some reflections on the past week. I took one of my little people for a haircut last weekend, and we go to a barber. There's a couple of barbers that we go to in the um, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and one of them, the, the, both the places that we usually go to are quite fun. There's usually pretty loud salsa music turned up, and it was just this beautiful moment where one of the barbers was dancing along to the music, singing, and then I noticed that his phone was popped up vertically, just under the mirror, and there was a lady with a microphone and I didn't know if that was the person who had who was singing the song that we were hearing in the barbershop and then what it turns out is that I guess like because he was all gooey-eyed looking at her so he'd do a couple of he'd cut hair for 30 seconds and then he'd pause move his legs in a very rhythmic subtle way and then just with this gentle pout, turn to the phone and sing along to the song. And I think it took me maybe three or four minutes because I, I haven't seen this before. I'm, I'm sure it's common in very many places and in different ways. I realized that I guess that he was his girlfriend or his wife and they were singing to each other. And it was, I think, 11.30 on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's a beautiful sight to behold. <laughs> I would have been nervous if, if he was cutting my hair on, on the one hand, because he was a bit distracted, but maybe he would cut my hair with love. Speaking of hair, I haven't had a haircut since November. The, win- the winter came and I just started to wear what I would call a beanie, but apparently is more like a winter cap in New York, whereas a beanie is like heavy-duty thing. And a winter cap is, uh, I don't know, it's a small beanie. I don't really understand the difference. And I just started to hide under one of those beanies for... Uh, three or four months let the hair grow out and now apparently it looks stupid so I've got to work out I've got to work out what to do with that you know you just hit this point in your life where apparently your hair choices look stupid although I'm pretty sure I made a lot of stupid hair choices growing up spent a little bit of time in Nashville Monday and Tuesday such an interesting city it's busy always good people down there And it's just to reiterate something that's kind of obvious, because that is that is the South, and it is 
it's very central in America, and a lot of I think a lot of conventions happen there. Not just Las Vegas, which is more Western, but Nashville attracts a lot of comings together. I believe it's the Hens Night capital of the U.S., maybe of the world. That's what I was told. I also heard it. Uh, it's funny when you go there because you often hear these theories that people in a driver of an Uber car will repeat, and then someone else will repeat. So the things that I often hear about Nashville are that there are some U.S headquarters of large companies moving in. So Nissan moved in a while ago. That's an example. I believe that part of the Mars business, as in Mars Bar, the chocolate company, which is not all they do, but I think their pet care business is there. There's a bunch of, a bunch of uh, businesses moving in. There's more traffic than you'd expect, well, that I, than I would expect. You just, so I do hear people complaining about public transport. I'm not sure how much ahead planning has happened in Nashville. I'm not making any judgments about it. It's just stuff I hear. And then the other one I love is about how Nashville is within, I don't know, I, I joke about it. It's within 24 hours of 80% of the USA, like a 24-hour drive. Or maybe it's, I don't even, even know if that's correct. It might even be a shorter drive, but it, it's very central. And obviously the music scene there is huge. There probably are a bunch of Aussies there making music right now as we talk. That's how they spend their Saturday and I spend mine walking around a park. Memphis isn't far, Huntsville, Chattanooga. And I guess to the east of... East of Chattanooga, and is it Knoxville? I guess that starts to become the Appalachian Mountains. And from what I understand, that's where a lot of the Scots-Irish moved, or eventually moved to when they moved to this country a long time ago. And the Appalachian Mountains, it's interesting, I read a book called... Uh, what's it called? American Nation by Colin Woodhard. And it looks at what... The theory is that there are 11 founding cultural colonies... I'll call them cultural colonies of the of, of North America. Um, that is not to that, that's very that sentence completely skips over the indigenous history. So I'm, I want to be um, I want to honour that just recognise that as well. But as far as the Europeans moving here, about 11 founding colonies, and over the centuries they've tracked the migration of these colonies because a lot of the cultural attitudes moved or migrated with them so the northeast was apparently it's the yankees they wanted people to read because it meant that they could read the bible and that would get them closer to god also puritanical or calvinist i think i'll get some of this confused but that then you can look it up and it's not about proving me wrong but you can explore it for yourself uh, and i think there was a migration of that group of people to the northwest to seattle as well so there's some cultural similarities there and because of that reading, I mean, you get amazing colleges in the Northeast. This is one theory. And I think I read research years ago that I th is Massachusetts is like they buy the most books, maybe per capita. Look it up. Not sure. Interesting. <laughs> Fabricated. And then the Appalachian Mountains with the Scots-Irish, their whole thing was that they didn't, they were just, they, they didn't, I, from what I understand is they didn't want to take sides with anyone. So that when there was, was fighting or political turmoil in Pennsylvania, for example, that they would side with the group temporarily that would kind of just leave them alone, maybe give them a little bit of power, leave them alone. And then when they migrated around the US, because I think they also moved to the Northwest, they tended to stay in the outskirts of, of cities. So if you've traveled around the US or you've seen movies, documentaries about it, but you haven't spent time here, 
I really, it's really interesting to, to read a book like that. Amer I think it's called American Nation, Colin Woodard, W-O-O-D-A-R-D. And when you travel, you're like, ah, maybe that's what's going on here. Who knows? So, Nashville, 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 Nashville's fun. Like, it's definitely building up, and people talk about it building up. It's very, it's in the middle of everything. It attracts a lot of parties. It's quite rowdy when you walk. I've been there maybe four or five times now. They actually have a huge chess tournament, and every four years they have what they call a super national, and that's where about four or 5,000 people come to play chess, kids actually. So it's, it's really, really big. A lot of music there. Did I mention Memphis isn't that far away? I haven't been to a lot of these towns and I, or cities, and I want to get there. Uh, anyway, shout out to Nashville if you're down there. Oh, speaking of Nashville, this uh, one of these walks was reviewed by a Nashvillian. It's totally not the word, is it? Matt Birch said, your podcast reminds me of the caustic romanticism of New York, which I took to understand that when I complain about winter here, and then a few sentences before or after, I'm talking about how green this park is that I'm in and how beautiful it is and how much noise there is and how, how fun it is. And whoop, bike goes past and there's arguing, but it's still kind of fun. I think that's what you're talking about, right, Matt? I think. Catch up with you next time I'm down there. Uh, yeah, and shout out to everyone I, I did catch up with. I, had the, I always have these funny interactions. I put this in, in maybe on Instagram as well. But uh, I, was, I was at a hotel bar and there was a group of uh, people. I don't think they were from Nashville, but they were, they were visiting. And I, I definitely get comments like, oh, I've never, never met an, an Australian I don't like. And, <laughs> and then someone's like, have you ever seen a big spider? I'm like, yeah, I've seen a big spider. And, no, and they're like, no, on YouTube, there's a really big spider on YouTube. This, this, this is a group of people who are older than me, just excited to have a chat. So then the video comes out about the big spider. Uh, in Australia and yeah Nashville's interesting because I guess they're, they're aware of some kind of Australian presence because Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman I think they have a relatively high profile there they live there I've seen photos of them going to the Predators game Preds the hockey what I call ice hockey but here it's called hockey uh, anyway it's kind of cool and then this is right, like this weekend, finalizing some... <laughs> I'm scheming for this trip to India this week. Haven't been there before. I went to the doctor to get shots. It was a bit late. Uh, they kind of said, oh, not much we can do for you. And if we gave you shots right now, they probably wouldn't kick in until you got, get back. So I've got some malaria tablets and some ammonium, imodium tablets. Uh, I know you're here for the creative beef talk, and this is just... This is, told you, stream of consciousness writing. I'm just trying to make sense of my week out loud. And obviously still preparing for the strategy supersized Omega class now in New York, Chicago, LA. You could Google that and you'd probably find it or you'll find a tweet to it. We don't have an official URL because we're rebellious and maybe that's reckless, but you know, I really appreciate everyone. This is about as a commercial as I'll get on this episode, by the way. Uh, but it's not just for that. It's also because it's a big part of my life and I love doing the training. And, and as I've gotten older, it's very easy to say these things and you get to decide whether it's true or not. I could totally understand someone being cynical about what I'm about to say and I am repeating some things if you've heard a few of these. But as I've gotten older, I often in these rooms where I'm doing these talks or training and uh, you know what, first of all I appreciate that I, my voice is out there like it is now because I closed down for a while. I burnt out after I did my magazine, I moved countries, I didn't feel like I was helping get any good work done, I felt like a fraud. I did a talk at Cannes during this time as well. And the agency that I represented, they were doing good work. We just had this bizarre run, bizarre run of 
teams working really hard on projects for six to nine months and a couple of them got pulled. Uh, I think they could have been like really career life changing for a lot of those people. That's, that's how good I thought that work was. And just unfortunately, we just had this barren, barren kind of period. Did this talk in Cannes. I was like, I don't, we don't have any recent work to show, so I'll talk about how we work, which is also interesting. Um, and then a few of the career moves, a few of the jobs that I took, just, I don't know, they weren't as advertised. Buyer beware. And again, not a lot of work to show. But at the same time, I think without those experiences, without having seen so many different interpretations of what we do, maybe I wouldn't even be doing this. And there's a certain, there's definitely a certain anger and fire in me because of those experiences. You know, you spend 15, 20 years doing something, and a lot of, there are people listening right now who will relate to this, and if you don't relate to this now, I have a feeling you might at some point. You spend 15 or 20 years doing something, and it wasn't super difficult, but the people, the team you were with, tended to do pretty good work, and then you move into a system that is difficult, and people, generally speaking, don't seem to be that interested in doing good work, which is very dramatic. It's really confusing. It's really confusing, and it's not just in our industry. You look at sports players moving around, business people moving around. It's just different, different cultures that you go into. Uh, one of the little anecdotes from that, and I know I use sports anecdotes a little, maybe too often for some of you. Uh, there's a book called Soconomics, and it talked about how a lot of the South American players would move to England, and they would just, they'd get purchased or whatever it was, and they'd move there. And there was no like onboarding into the English culture or no establishing of uh, local communities. So they and their families would get upset and not want to stay there very long. Now that might seem more a more extreme version of, say, someone from Sydney moving to New York, but I think it's the same stuff going on. Culture shock. And then you're like, is it just me? So yeah, here, here honestly, just feeling alive, I really, really appreciate it. I'm not ashamed, ashamed of that. You could say it's arrogant, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I doubt, <laughs> I judge myself pretty much every five seconds as I'm doing these, well, what I'm doing right now as well a little in those talks and that's not to I'm not doing that as self-deprecation that's real like my brain is like shut up uh, and the second thing is realizing that words are my love language that there's a sense of like deeper connectedness that I feel with the planet even though I'm making it up in my head but I feel it when I'm in a room of people who are trying to do similar things or learn contribute they're curious I, I don't know something, they're my people and so to be in a room with them to share the things that I enjoy doing. I always say it's not to dominate, I'm not there to win, but it's just like an act of, act of love, really, an act of sharing. And young me would have thought that's very strange, a very strange thing to say. But I think it's part of that life stage continuum for many people. I'll get a few interviews coming up, and one of them was uh, with an old friend called, his name's Toby Ryan. He's head of security at a casino in Macau. Well, casino and resort. Uh, complex in Macau. I think he has about a thousand security staff there. And he worked in, uh, in the casino in Sydney, probably at least in his early 20s, early to mid 20s. He could have been younger, I'm not sure. Uh, and then he's been in Macau for about 12 years now. <clears throat> and he, and he, he trains in MMA. He's training some amateurs to fight as well. And one of the points that you'll hear him talk about when I put this live in a couple of weeks is that you, you kind of go from this brute force mentality. Now with him, and with a lot of people who do martial arts and do security work, they want, they want to be tested and they want to use brute force. But maybe there's a way for you to think about how you're behaving as brute force. And then as you get a little bit older, you listen a little bit more. And you know, he, he made this comment about how he judged one of the 
older people he was working with when he was young as just not being aggressive enough and assertive enough. And then he used this beautiful phrase, which he must use all the time. He realized that it was all about achieving a peaceful resolution. Just about having a peaceful resolution. Getting people out of there, making sure people are safe. And if you're in a casino, making sure that the casino is still earning money. So you hear these, you hear these concepts in all kinds of walks of life. And the more you, ex you expose yourself to them, the more that you can work out, well, what's a peaceful resolution to me? In my day job or in my relationships? All right. What else? What else? Yeah, so I'm, gonna get, I'm finalizing my scheme for India this week. I like to try to cause mischief. One of the questions I ask is, you know, what's, what's the risk I can take? What's something silly that I can do that's uh, not mean-spirited, not vulgar? What's something I can do? And I've got, I've got a couple of thoughts, but uh, I just need to get through this day to work out whether it feels right. Part of it's about bravery. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I mentioned on the last walk and talk, I did some thoughts about how I get presentations together. Part of it's about bravery, and then part of it's like, you know what, this is me, this is, this is, this is me. I'm doing what I can, trying, people are going to judge it, I get it, totally, totally get it. But I'm just, I'm just trying to be, <laughs> just trying to exist, and this is the way I exist. All right. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Alright, so we're going to talk about writing creative briefs today, we'll talk about propositions, we'll talk about workshops, we'll talk about templates, and there are a couple of questions popping up on Instagram. Sometimes I post these questions in Instagram stories. If you, if you want to check it out, it's at Mark Pollard. And I told people I'm going to record in an hour, so there might be a couple of questions there. We'll find out in about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. I'll probably go for about an hour in total today if I go longer. I don't know, you guys tell me. And I really have appreciated the beautiful messages from people uh, who are like, yeah, do that weird stuff, man, it's cool. It's totally weird. Keep doing it. Maybe, and I know some, some people listen to the walk and talks while they're walking. And in some ways, maybe you're replacing the voice in your head. I think that's a lot of what we're doing. And it can give you a reprieve. Uh, anyway, it's nice to be in your head with you today, I'll tell you that much. And it is, it is really a beautiful New York day. You're going to hear some music and all sorts of stuff soon. Okay, so we'll talk about writing creative briefs. Three words, you know what I'm going to do. Point at least one of them out, and then we're going to talk about what they mean. Have they always meant that? What's good, what's not good? So writing creative briefs. The word to point out there is writing. Not filling in creative briefs. No one's ever, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me the question, how do I fill in a creative brief? Maybe they have. Usually it's like, how do I write a good creative brief? Maybe it's how do I make a good creative brief. And even then, I would prefer the words write and make over the thought of filling in. Think about it. You know, <laughs> you know the moral here, right? Writing. Words. Good words. Good writing. That is at the heart, I think, of a flourishing life. But, you know, a lot of people don't like to write. They like to use uh, visuals. And I'm not talking about people who do our work, and that's totally fine as well. But if, if you're drawn to the word and you like to express through the word and you do some kind of role similar to what I'm talking about here. I mean, writing is at the, uh, at the heart of it. It's at the heart of it. But also, you know, if you've got friends or you're married to people who end up being in the finance world or CFOs, CMOs, not that they have to have big titles, the better they write. I just have a feeling that like the more flourishing their career can be. I have a feeling, says the <laughs> guy who largely operates on intuition. So write, 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 read books on writing. Then we get into creative briefs. So there are many different types of briefs and sometimes they get confused. Typically, 
if we're thinking largely from the perspective of a creative agency, there's a marketing brief that comes in. Now, the main audience of the marketing brief, one might think, is the creative agency. And the agency at large, or the team at large, not the creative team, it's the team at large. However, really with most marketing briefs, it's hard not to think that the main audience is actually senior marketers. Because sometimes those marketing briefs will unlock budget. However, before the marketing brief is done, there's usually some kind of, we'll call it an annual plan, there's some kind of plan that requests the budget. And I would encourage anyone who knows marketing people or who is a marketer just to pause on what those two documents do. Let's call it a marketing plan. I don't know what the link, what the cool hip lingo is these days and whether everyone's like post plan and too futuristic for plans anymore, which is, I get it, totally fine. But you separate the marketing plan from the marketing brief from the main audiences. Marketing plan, main audience for that initially is the internal part of that company trying to release budget so that they can get resources, hire people if they need to. Then the marketing brief, the main audience is the, the agency. Most marketing briefs, I have a feeling, are really just copy and paste of the marketing plan. Not everyone. Not every single marketing brief is that. But I, I just encourage anyone in that marketing role who has responsibility of writing a marketing brief just to think, hang on, we're talking to really different people here. The, you know, the group account director who's going to make, help make this happen the creative director, ECD, the copywriters, the art directors, the strategy folk who are eventually going to see this, probably, they won't all, it's a really different kind of person to the CFO, they have different needs. And so if you're trying to work out how to write a good market, marketing brief or what should even be on it, talk to the people you're working with, it's different for every agency. And also like the life stage of the individuals, what they've learned about their craft, what they actually need. Maybe a marketing brief is a page. I've seen a lot of them that are start to get into that five to ten page realm it's not very brief you know i think if we're going to use the brief a page can it be a page i think anytime we use a brief one of the main questions you've got to ask is like what's the least that needs to be here i mentioned this thought before minimum required effort mre what's the least i need to do to get the most impact or to hope to get the most impact okay so marketing brief comes in I, I know I spent a few years really trying to, in an earnest way, pay attention to marketing briefs where, you, you know, you've got drive awareness, consideration, intent, maybe trial, purchase, it's a, like a conventional old school path to purchase. And then after that, you might have usage and repeat purchase and advocacy. And a lot of these marketing briefs come in and sometimes they just say all of that. <laughs> and if you're going to say all of that, then you're not making any decisions. You're not leaving anything out. So it's diff it's, it makes it more difficult for the people with whom you're operating. I think with briefs, part of what can we take out, you've got to think this is an act of brinkmanship. I'm trying to dare people and excite people to work on this project. Not inspire them. Scare them. Psych them out. Haunt them. Not in a mean way. In a cheeky way. You want to tell your agency team that you need to drive awareness, consideration and conversion for the new product launch of version 5 of etc, etc, fancy product name by reminding people that it's excellent. 
Okay. <laughs> I don't know what is. I don't know what that means. Who's driving the car? Shotgun. Drive a golf ball. Drive a car. You're really driving awareness. No, you can't. You can't. Totally can't. I'm such a meanie to some of these these words. Uh, Just coming past Sheep's Meadow on the west side, about to hit Columbus Circle. I've just pointed that out for the people who've been here, and I know that they can potentially smell the cut grass. Pretty sure I can smell a lingering hot dog somewhere. Yeah, there it is, hot dog, hot pretzel. One of those street vendors. Oh, speaking of street vendors, you know, if, if you've ever seen those small, I would call them, I don't even know what they're called, news agencies, but those little huts that sell lots of candy and all the newspapers and magazines. I was walking past one of those day, uh, one of those yesterday, and I was like, hmm, that's a bit of a metaphor for our lives. We hide behind all this treasure because they have small windows and you can just sort of just see, the one I saw was really, really cluttered. And in it, you could see a couple of gentlemen and they were recessive, you know, you couldn't, they weren't sticking out. You had to kind of focus on where they were because it was such a cluttered, colorful, whatever you call them. And I was like, how is that a metaphor for our lives? Just lay all these treasures out, these honey pots, hoping to attract people. While maybe on the inside, <laughs> I don't know, are we hiding behind it all? Not, not having our own treasure in there? Or, thinking we have to have treasure on the outs. Anyway, that's my brain. Welcome to my head. Uh, if you have a better thought on that, yeah, let me know. I'm, I'm curious, I like to play with these things. What if X is like Y? What if I'm like a tree in Central Park at the start of, is this the start of summer? It's Memorial Day weekend. That's the start of summer, right? I get so confused. I just had jet lag and culture shock for eight years, but also happy to be here, America. I love you. Okay, so back to creative briefs and marketing briefs. So, yep, marketing brief for thinking about the audience and then we're getting, and we're remembering that we're gonna write, that we're gonna lay a trap for people, get them excited, and then there's an act of brinkmanship. What's the least that I need in here to have an impact? And who's the impact on? Yeah, it's the audience of the creative brief. Some of this stuff's super obvious, but sometimes we need to hear it again. Let's talk creative brief templates. So, I think, What's uh, and I've been I've worked on a few projects in the past year looking at different companies' templates. Uh, when I go through my, for some of you I know you've seen like the how to do account planning article and you might have seen this new, newish. Uh, it's not that I'm embarrassed. It's just like it's just how I like to work and I love sharing it. And then I'm like I don't know is any of this original? Does it even matter? But like I love it. So that whole PIAS problem inside advantage strategy, the, the drawings that I sometimes show and I talk about what those words mean. Um, hang on, what was I gonna talk about? Templates, right? Yeah, so, hang on, let's go. Let's actually, step back, step back. So we go into what's a creative brief, who's it for? We know who it's for. It's really largest for the creative department if you're working with uh, a creative department if you're in an advertising agency and if you're not then work out who the audience is what it's not is a vault of information what it's not is you trying to impress people by showing them all the work you've done what it's not is you writing out your reasoning out loud what it's not <laughs> is long what it is is whatever you need it to be there's no perfect template 
And if we think about the word premise in stand-up comedy, where a premise is something that starts what's to come, maybe it should be called a strategy premise because it starts what's to come. We get confused about how important it is. And I do, I really feel this, that for a lot of us, at times in our careers, the creative brief is, is a false climax. And especially if you're not even talking to each other as the brief's getting written. It's this weird document, you pass it on, someone passes something back, oh gosh. What kind of career is that? What kind of life is that? Talk to each other. So there are a few different philosophies around what a creative brief is. Uh, there are more traditional philosophies. And then I think as ideas like uh, user experience and design thinking have popped up, then those philosophies can change a little bit. And also I think in some parts of the world, business business strategy and and we constantly get shamed about not being data oriented enough or that's how I say data these these days Australia data oriented enough or you know we don't talk the CFO's language or the CEO's language and gosh those management consultants have got that all sorted out and that's going to make us inferior so what are you going to do you're going to listen to all of that and become that so that we're all the same aren't you is that what you want to do no now is the time to remember the rebellious, intellectual, I'll say fearlessness. Fearlessness, often in spite of knowing your own flaws and life and mental health struggles, now's the time to remember that. I truly believe that's so easy to say. You've got to find it somehow. If you just want to become like the management consultants or a business person or someone who's all about the numbers or an engineer because they seem to be winning the world right now and shaming you because you're, they think you're not, well, are you not? You don't even have to agree with the premise of what they're saying just because it gets pushed around in advertising publications. I completely disagree with it. In history, you see, often see these wrestles between, uh, I, I think that, I don't know if the right and left brain construct is still, still holding, I don't know. It's all this new neuroscience research about uh, neuroplasticity, so the brain can change over time, and there's a great book called Oh, what's it called? The Brain That Can Change Itself? The, oh my gosh, I just forgot that book. I read that about seven years ago. It's, it's a good read. And it talks about how some of the folklore about how we used to believe that certain functions, certain human functions only existed in parts of the brain. And then over time they realized that when a brain was injured, some of those functions might actually reappear somewhere else. Could be wrong again. Like I've got so much stuff in my head, totally aware I could be wrong. Point is just to go do your own reading, make your own mind up. I'm not really here to convince you of anything. I'm just here to express and like give you a thing to think about. You work it, you work it out for yourself. Yeah, you're a creative individual, that's the job, work it out for yourself. Uh, so, yeah, so then I go back to what's the point of a creative brief? It's to start everything, that's pretty general. Then I go back to, well, what's strategy? So creative brief is supposed to contain the key bits of strategy, uh, where that word to me means an informed opinion about how to win. I started to use the word secular maybe too often, but that to me is a secular definition of that. Uh, and always trying to remember when we are, or when other people are definitely or might be using different definitions of the words that you feel that you understand, or jamming silent adjectives in front of those words, or trying to police the use of certain words in, in a company. Idea. What's an idea? When you're in a meeting and someone says, that's not an idea, or here's the idea, 
what do they mean by that word? Are they using silent adjectives in front of it? Are they talking about a, a brand idea, a product idea, a company idea? Or are they actually talking about a thought? And then when poli people police who gets to have an idea, I tell you what, if you're working in a company that says it sells ideas and only a small group of people are allowed to have ideas, that's not a good place to be mentally because you do want most people in that company, all people in that company to have ideas. It's just there are different types of ideas. If the planner has ideas, I would want the CFO to have ideas. Don't tell me who gets to have an idea if you're working in a company that sells ideas. Everyone, everyone. Different types and we respect that and we allow certain people to lead them, sometimes have complete control over them, but they don't get to police the language around any of that stuff. So that's one of the fights um, that I, I truly believe in. Do what you will with it. So strategy and informed opinion about how to win, a brief tries to get the main pieces of thinking into it. Now, here's, here's what trips, I think, here can, here's what can trip a lot of people up. You could write, again, what I'd refer to as a secular brief. You could use, what's the problem we want to solve? How are we going to solve it? It could be two lines. Implicit in that is some kind of understanding of the business issue, what you're going to measure, where you're going to appear, uh, and the audience, something new about them. At least those few things, at least those few things. There's probably a couple of things I missed off. Could be tone, considerations, mandatories. That's a secular brief, right? But I really do believe in this, and sometimes these can be overwrought, and I've probably overwrought, is that overrung, uh, some brief templates that, I think a creative brief, it helps if a creative brief answers to a strategic philosophy. So if you do think about some of the, the, the lines or the ideas in the, some of the larger advertising agencies, you know, McCann has truth well told, TBWA has zig, uh, hang on, is it zigzag? Oh my gosh, it's one of those. Or oh, I had one of those. Uh, Zeus Jones, I, you know, that really popped up with some beautiful content years ago on the internet. I feel it was the first decade of the 2000s. They talked a lot about utility. You know, I rewrote a brief in Australia for McCann that was, uh, we, we just called it Pass It On. It's a cliche, but it was Pass It On. You know, and we looked at some of the, the research around what, what was getting shared and why largely from Jonah Berger at the time, who had just popped up from some of his research into what was getting shared for the New York Times, and try to understand the principles that and then capture that in a brief. So it's, it is useful, a lot of, because a lot of people are like, what's the brief I use? And you might need multiple briefs, they might be authored by different people, but if you're trying to get to a, you know, an integrated campaign idea, again, it's, it's, it's difficult language unless you describe it, but like, a, say you're launching a product and you, you don't know how you're gonna communicate it, you're st almost starting from scratch, almost then that kind of brief is going to be tighter and more, maybe more compelling. It's, it is a bit of a spiritual home in the way that a, an, a company website can be these days. If it can answer to a philosophy, a strategic philosophy, then it can be powerful. So, you know, a lot of McCann's documents, for example, they do answer to the truth, truth well told. I'm not sure if Leo Burnett's still using humankind as their main thing. Uh, one of the things I think Leo Burnett's been really good at is the idea rating scale. There's a few companies that have, uh, that have them. And, uh, and I don't know if they do brief, I don't know if there's a brief rating scale that actually gets used. I've got documents from ages ago where I think in some parts of the world people were reviewing briefs on a scale of 1 to 10 where each of those numbers had a specific quality next to it. So I might be getting this wrong. Because there's also a Heineken rating scheme. I think AMV, DDB had one. There's, there's a bunch of them floating around. You can find them. You know, so one might be destructive. It actually hurts the brand or the company. Ten might be world-changing, forever, infinity and beyond. I'm not sure. Okay, but it helps to have a philosophy. Uh, 
and there might be some research in it. You know, if you're involved with behavioral change, it's not difficult to look up some research on how people change behavior. And it could be stuff such as your, um, oh, what is it, you consciously, sorry, unconsciously incompetent. So you, you don't really know that you don't know. Then I think the next phase in this particular model that I'm recalling from a long time ago is that you then become consciously incompetent. So you know that you don't know. You take up martial arts, you're like, oh, this looks pretty cool. You get a weekend, you're like, oh gosh, I really don't know what I'm doing. Three months in, oh, I think I know a little bit. So you go on this ride and then consciously competent. So let's say you're riding a bike and you're riding it, but you're kind of looking at your pedals and you're paying more attention to the bike and your balance than just riding. And then you get to unconsciously competent where you just do. So you could put a few other uh, fields around that and that could be a brief. Maybe there's a, a, a leading thought. Okay, so philosophy of strategy or strategic philosophy will help a lot of the debates around what kind of brief template we need exist. And at the same time, be very careful of treating any creative brief or any template or, you know, anything in the world is really being sacred and unchangeable and, and kind of developing this authoritarian dynamic and becoming like an, an anchor around the neck. Is that a thing? It is now. Keep an eye on that. We've got, we've got to latch and detach, be strong and then loose. There's time and place. Um, okay. What do you put on it? Mm. I have to say that over the years, I've probably written some pretty straightforward briefs that were trying to sound a little bit marketing-like or then just trying to sound cute. And honestly, when you're starting out, if you're writing briefs about, for example, parenthood or retirement, you don't know. You don't know. And a lot of what you're going to be writing is just going to be pretty obvious. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Scott Davis, who, for a little bit of time, so I worked with a guy called Todd Sampson, who was head of planning at Leo Burnett in Sydney. And then Scott, Scotty, Scott Davis came in. And there are a couple of things, I, I don't know how long we worked together, six months, maybe a year. A couple of things that I really enjoyed about the way he worked. He was a frenzy about the work, by the way. And I, I actually quite love that. At the time, Scotty, a little intense, mate. A little intense, but I appreciate it now. And a couple of things I really enjoyed, and it's both Todd and Scott in this situation, is the hunger for simplicity. And the hunger for simplicity can mean the template doesn't really matter, not initially, but you want to get to that one thing, get to a thing, just a new idea, where an idea is combining things that don't usually exist together. And with a strategist, we can use whatever metaphors we want as as far as saying strategy is X. But I do think one metaphor, one analogy to think through is the idea that the ideas of, of planning or strategy are very much like the ideas of nonfiction, of nonfiction writers, where a good paragraph in a nonfiction essay will totally blow your mind. However, a big part of the planner's job is also fiction. You're making it up. What could exist? Here's another idea. So just on Scotty, what I appreciated about him, you know, we redid the brief at Leo Burnett. We did it by talking to some of the creatives there, like what they actually needed. They, they usually need less than we think. And so one side of the brief, oh, and also uh, Todd and the team there, they wanted to focus on collaborative problem solving, CPS, collaborative problem solving. And so, you know, all, honestly, all the presentations from the leadership there where there's like three or four things, five things on the slide is all very simple, very straightforward. And, it was beautiful to see. And if you're in a leadership position, don't fear that. It sends a beautiful message of what matters. Not the noise, but the calmness and the focus. 
So Scotty, we would write these little, I've played in a different way with some of these things, but I remember we had a presentation to Amstel and I just watched how he wrote. And uh, we weren't getting where we wanted to go as quickly as we wanted to get there. And then I was just watching how he was, how he was working on a brief and I just sat there with a piece of paper, a pen, and kind of just started to write these points of all the, like just a slightly more poetic version of a research finding that led to a thought. It was 10 sentences and he looked at, I think he looked at it and he's like, yep, yeah, that's it. So then we typed it up on, a, I think there was a, yeah, we typed it up, center aligned text. There were probably 10 to 15 lines on the text, sorry, on the page. We mounted it, we put it on foam board and we presented it to the client and the client hugged it. I think the, we just printed, you know, simple printing process. I think the Amstel light logo or pulse, maybe it was called around the world at the time, was on there. It was not heavily designed. Maybe the Leo Burnett logo was on there. And it was, it was really, a, I think, a really critical planning moment for me because I realized that it was just about the words. I understand that better now in a way deeper way than I did back then. But to have you know, wrestled with what we were going to do for a couple of weeks and then to have tried to come up with some stuff that we could do, write it all down, and then just to have written one piece of paper that the head of planning was like, I think, I think you got that there, keep going. And I think he tweaked some of the words as well. I was still a baby planner. I was in my, I was probably 28, 29, but I was new to brand planning. You know, I was 10 years, I started in agencies at 19, so I've been in agencies, but I was doing more user experience information architecture. And then we put on a piece of paper and then the client hugged it and it was enough. It was kind of beautiful. The other thing I appreciate about watching Scotty write briefs is he wouldn't necessarily use full sentences, you know, and he's definitely not using language like we drive, a, we need to drive awareness and consideration by deprioritizing the stigma of the stigmatization of the innovation of humanity and the betterment of criminality and la la la, la. doesn't do that. He might just, you know, if, if uh, sometimes when I think aloud I get nervous that I'm actually not going to make sense. So let's say we're walking around Central Park and there's a section of the brief that says describe the trees. He would just write green, the greenest green, green trees, tall in the sun. And there'd be little full stops or periods after these phrases. I don't think it was like that. <laughs> I took it way too poetic. Maybe, maybe, maybe you decide. Uh, but I was like, oh, you don't even need to write full sentences. That's interesting. Because what, he, what I think he understood is that the creative team, first of all, they don't really want to have to like the brief. Some do. They just have to tolerate it. And deep down, they're like, oh, screw this. I'm, some of them might say, screw this. I'm strategic. I can do better than this. Which is exactly what you would do. Reject other people's thinking. It's exactly what you do when you see your clients' briefs. It's exactly what you do when you see the ideas from the other agencies. It's exactly what you do when you see the ideas from the in-house team that you have to execute. Am I right? Am I? But what, do you, what I think he knew is that uh, when you had a decent relationship, good enough relationship with a creative department and a creative team, that they might respect the brief. Hopefully they would respect the brief because they would respect the discipline in the, in the company. So don't forget that the brief operates within a, within a culture, within an operating system. And so when you're like, what's the best template? You have to talk about the philosophy of the agency, I think. Philosophy of the agency, the strategic philosophy, what the creative work's trying to do, how people operate, and then talk to the individuals. At least those things. And that can be done quite quickly, by the way. It doesn't have to be a six-month drawn-out stakeholder interview process. And then you make some stuff up and see, how, see if it works. But I think what, he, what Scotty really understood about the creative world is if they, if they wanted to honor the brief that you didn't need to write a long essay, a phrase here, a phrase there. 
the greenest green trees on the, f on the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. I don't know if that means anything, but for some of you who grew up with Memorial Day weekend, for some of you who visited Central Park, for some of you who like green trees, that actually might mean a lot more than I think it means. And so you can work with it, but you the eye is basically, the creative eye is scanning for those phrases that they can try to not comply with, right? We don't become authoritarian, but use. Respond to honor. I think maybe the words honor. Oh, I'm, I'm getting all weird on you, Anna, as I grow up. I'm going to honor a couple of phrases on that brief. Okay. So then. Um, you know, you need to work out what goes on that brief. I'm a big fan of like, what's the problem that we're going to try to solve? To me, that's a human problem behind the business problem where I'm going to state it, where I'm going to state it in one clean sentence. And I might have like another sentence or two that support that sentence. So. Why don't people want, why don't more people want to move to New York? Well, you have to define, you have to realize that there might be a business issue. Maybe New York migration has dropped and so taxes have dropped and that's affecting public schools. So there's like a more of a money businessy talk there. Then you have to think about the audience. Who do they want to attract there? Uh, and then you interview people and maybe you characterize, um, please don't take this too seriously. This is just me making stuff up on the fly. Maybe there's a problem statement for a brief for, getting people to move to New York, that one of the reasons people don't move here, the main reason is that they've seen New York spit other people out. They've seen New York spit other people out. Short words, you decide whether it's good. You decide that, I'm not saying it's good. It's a clean sentence, but I could see that leading a paragraph in a non-fiction essay. Here's one of the reasons that a lot of people don't move to New York in the first place. They have seen New York spit other people out. Now we keep that business issue in mind, we keep the audience in mind, and if we go through the secular approach of problem to strategy through insight, colliding with what's unique and motivating about, in this case, moving to New York, and even in there you've got decisions. Is it about New York? Is it about moving to New York? Is it about living in New York for two years? What do we actually want people to do? Did they solve the, this imagined tax situation if they get 100,000 people to move here for two years, in the next five years. So you give yourself additional creative constraints and that's where the numbers are powerful. Focus is the thinking. Now we've got this problem statement and at some point we want to work out how to reverse it, how to reframe it. New York spits people out. I know where I can go with that pretty quickly. In, and there's probably an argument that New York City could literally make and I guess based on problem inside advantage strategy, what I'm now going, because I don't know, I don't have this written down or planned, I haven't even thought about it. Um, you could probably argue that New York, if you go back into the cliche of you can make yourself in New York. There's a better language for that, which we'll get to. And maybe there's an insight. See, I, I lean more towards the private, the individual insight. Uh, but this might end up being a cultural insight. I don't tend to say brand insight or product insight or category insight. I, I just try to use the word insight once, like the insight, which can also make it sound too, too official and too important compared to how I treat them, which is just these it's like little hunches and they're informed and they're, then they hope to form what comes, their premise. So you could say that there's an insight that... Uh, 
A lot of people don't even come to New York to stay, they come to make themselves. So what you're trying to do through that insight is to disconnect the idea of moving here from living here forever. And, and then maybe you start to use different language. So from move, it might be come here, stay here, rest here, or make yourself here. Rest is too passive for what this city is about and how hard it is to make it work for a lot of people. And then you could get to some kind of strategy statement that is trying to acknowledge that at some point you'll leave, but hopefully you'll have made yourself, remade yourself, you'll have understood yourself, and you're going to get spat out but in a really powerful way, like a blowhole. And so I, I, I try to get visuals. They don't always make sense. Blowhole, is the word geyser, geyser? Geyser, you know, like there's like caves in the rocks on the side of oceans that just, they kind of spit you up, but it's like a cool spitting up. You'd want to ride on it, except, you know, if you <laughs> ride on it, you're going to hit the, hit the uh, hit the stone. So then you think, okay, it's a, it's a little bit more like a rocket launcher, but we're talking about spit out. So to what degree can I just stay in that word spit? I'm trying to reframe it from spitting you out as in with saliva and gooey and just destroyed and spitting you out. You know what it is? It's basically like a Phoenix rising kind of thing. So there's about four sentences that someone could summarize from what I just said. That's essentially what would go on a creative brief. And then you can have a few extra proof points around it. And remember, creative brief is not about proving that you've done work. It's an argument. You can have separate presentations and meetings that actually have the research in it. And then um, you might have numbers around goals, goals, which could be my, like, you know, awareness or sales or people moving here, or I don't know what it would be. Like, I guess the sales goal in that situation, I guess it's uh, tax residents signing up from other parts of the US. And then you need to work out is it just America, within America, where are they most likely to come from, propensity? But the point is within four sentences you get what you want to see out of the work. And hopefully there's enough in that as a body of uh, thinking, four sentences, that can stimulate a creative team to take it further. And I use longer sentences in uh, strategy statements. I think, I think I got some of that from Scotty Davis too, I'm not sure but I, I appreciated seeing this uh, desire to write these longer sentences that weren't trying to be taglines, slogans, hashtags, campaign ideas. So for this one, it's, uh, we'll show that when New York spits you out, it's more like a phoenix. You decide whether that's good. Now, you could do a single-minded proposition from that, which is still trying to stay true to that thought, but it's just shorter words. So, and then if you were to try to do like a, a whole, um, topical campaign around Thanksgiving where people in America return home. Maybe there's a, a second type of brief which is trying to capture that topical moment and the proposition, the single minor proposition for that is uh, home, homecoming like a phoenix, return home like a phoenix. Alright, so just trying to work out how to give that spitting out in an amazing, beautiful way a more topical context. You might talk tone, personality. I'm, I'm a little bit over of the tone debates around the most, there's probably 20 most common words used in tone. What are they? What are they? Yeah. Simple, approachable, optimistic, confident, joyful, easy. But and then we always see this one. Simple, but not basic. Okay. Awkward. Basic became cool a few years ago. Maybe it should be basic. 
but yeah, it sort of becomes a little bit stereotypical. Sometimes movies or authors or comedians, actors, people that people know are better frames of reference. You might pick a movie and then pull out some of the adjectives that stuck with you from the movie. Um, sometimes people confuse tone and values. So if you find yourself in that situation, and I think increasingly simplicity is more of a value than simple. It's more useful, it's sort of useful as a value. It's not very interesting. Uh, and again, we're going. To, we're talking about writing creative briefs, and writing is you get your words out, and there's problem solving. You try to fix the words. Have I heard it that way before? And there's a lot of uh, conventional wisdom that if you've seen the words on a piece of paper like that before, don't do that. Do something else. Find different words. Play with the meaning. Yeah, so don't, don't get too stuck in the idea of having a perfect template. Then you might need different templates. You don't want, if it's a creative brief to get to a, like a new idea that you hope to captivate a lot of people with, that doesn't need to look like a project plan. It doesn't need to look like a, a measurement dashboard. And then it depends on the philosophy. So some people might have a data-driven insight. And while I make fun of that word by saying, or that idea by saying that everything's data-driven, all insights are data-driven, you might have a, a percentage in front of something that's interesting. So one of the ones I like to talk about is something I came across a long time ago. don't know if it's repeated, repeated science, but I found it in an academic paper about, about altruism or donations. And the sentence is that couples who argue about how much to donate tend to donate more. Now, I think that's an insight. You could ask why, which is what I do <laughs> if you're in a room with me. And you then editorially have to decide which is which, which you're going to use. Now, I think when we talk about data-driven insights, people are really talking about numbers, so an, uh, an insight with a number, a number insight. Now you could take couples who argue about how much to donate tend to donate more and say 66% of couples who argue about how much, how much to donate tend to donate or donate more. So you probably take the, yeah, you take the tend out of that because you've put a number in front of it. That's an insight, it's fine, whatever works. tone. I'm not a fan of thought starters anymore. Here's why. I think they're too exciting to do. There's a few reasons. I think they're too exciting to do. And we, we find the, the heroism in the thought starter. Oh, look, I'm basically in the creative department look, right now. Look at me. I know I'm being a bit sarcastic, but I think we find too much heroism there. We rush there and we don't spend enough time just getting those four sentences, for example, that I just used, depending on your own strategic philosophy, sharp or sharp enough. It's not about perfection. Also, nobody, uh, I don't know, do people use the thought starters? When I, I usually ask groups this, people are like, nah, <laughs> okay. So they're not getting used by the audience of the creative brief, which is, if you have a creative department, the creative department. So what do they do? Well, I want to show that I could do it, that I could get there. Cool. Doesn't need to be on the document then, does it? What's that for? Feel good about yourself? To show that you are diligent, that you can do it, that you did it. So what? The writer doesn't publish a novel and go, here are my notes for the novel. Just put them on page 481. Okay, don't need to convince you of this. I'm just giving you another way to look at a thing that you might love. Totally get it. There's also the idea that like a lot of creative briefs, when we write them for the first time, I felt, I felt a little bit like this. It's like, oh, so like you finally get the honor. Oh, you get to write the creative brief and then you're walking around and you ask, maybe you ask people for feedback, maybe you don't, but you don't want it. <laughs> you want someone to say, good, good to go, often. So just keep an eye on that kind of behavior because 
if you're doing strategy work, you're a channel, you're channeling other people's thoughts. You have authorship, you have a voice, and that is important. You can have the ideas that go in it, but that's also not the point. The point is for it to be good and useful. When we say good in that sense, it's about other people being able to take it even further and do amazing work that's effective, helps the client, helps you. That's the point, you're channeling. Don't be afraid of putting other people's ideas in there. Uh, propositions, I think, is, you know, how do I write a good proposition? So that's why I do problem inside of Andy's strategy. I'm looking for something that connects where I use the word strategy in that rubric with an exclamation mark to make the point that I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek because we use the word in very casual, vague, generous uh, ways. So a proposition, the single-minded proposition, is what are we proposing to people? What's the single thing we are proposing to people that will get them to buy this thing? That's, a, that's really where it comes from. That's how I understand it as well. And within that proposition, I'm looking for some reflection of human understanding. Now, at the same time, you could write a proposition that's very product-centric. Uh, New York is the... I don't, I'm just, I don't know, I'd need some facts for this. What am I going to say? New York City is tall, or the tallest. It's not, but it's the tallest, or it's on... What's that rock that it's on? You know, something that's more of a feature. One of the big New York campaigns from a long time ago, because it had a reputation for being cold, was about trying to be... I think it was about being a very welcoming city, friendly New Yorker, probably might have come out of that very campaign if you believe in that idea. And I, I, do, I do think it's true. It's an interesting city. Everyone's just trying to hold on to the iceberg to a large degree. Can you do that? Can you hold on to an iceberg? Hey, yeah, yeah. So look, that could be a proposition. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to make New York City feel more accessible, I'm going to move on to a different thought from the one I used before. In New York, everyone's trying to hold on to an iceberg. How do you support that? Well, you point to research you've done about, you know, I'm, just trying to, I'm trying to last, I'm trying to outlast, I just want to, I've got to keep going, it's hard, the rent's expensive, so on and so forth, and you articulate an insight that somehow connects to that. And then if you need reasons to believe, or things that are true to the company that you can use to support that argument, I don't think that's difficult with that particular one. A number of people who've lived here and then just had bad situations, had to leave, or... Or now, yeah, because this is a different idea to the one that I mentioned before about getting spat out like a phoenix or whatever that was. Uh, but you find, you know, three, four, five arguments, proof points to support that proposition. But within that proposition, hopefully there's a sentence that combines two things that don't always belong together. That's a lateral thought. A lateral thought is an idea. Having an idea is the act of creativity. So do, you, do we usually, and I look at this stuff in a very mechanical way, which is liberating, I find. Do we usually associate New York with icebergs? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe you have posters of New York on an iceberg in your bedroom and you've had that since you were born. And I'm being completely unoriginal. And if that's true, we get to historically new and psychologically new, which some of you have heard me talk about before. So New York and an iceberg, or New York and icebergs connected, that's psychologically new to me. And you're like, heard that before, that's unoriginal. That just means it's not historically new to you and that I'm still learning and I'm trying to do it with a light heart, right? But really, if you actually think about what that idea is, you add the phrase, holding on to the iceberg. In New York, everybody's, well, in, in New York, everybody's trying to hold on to the iceberg, or people like you are trying to hold on to the iceberg. I don't, I don't know what it is. 
So then you're really combining the thought of New York and not just an iceberg, but people holding onto the iceberg. That's the second part of that idea. So you're just putting things together. Uh, and if you get stuck reading on fiction, one of the, one of the other questions, and uh, Gillian Wrightford does a lot of teaching around these topics and was sort of reflecting about being in a creative brief writing workshop recently. I don't think it's difficult to argue that a creative brief workshop or a, a creative brief writing workshop, yeah, yeah, it might be a bit of a false premise. How do you do writing in that? Out loud, together? From what I understand of how writers' rooms work, you know, people who do this for a living have to get TV shows on air that night or that week or that month. There's still internal time to go do some thinking. And then people, a team, a writing team might come in, they share their ideas. And then, yes, there might be a, let's say it's a stand-up show, sorry, uh, a late-night show host might say, oh, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, keep going, keep going, and then they go back. There might be writers' rooms where everyone sits around a table and just kicks things around and someone has to grab hold of, of, of them. I wonder whether some of that is just a slight difference between like an extroverted lead and an introverted lead as far as the cultures. You know, extroversion leads one culture, introversion leads another. Uh, some of the problems that I find with workshops are just this desire to actually get to the thing before the very end and people panic about that and it just distracts people from the fact that, you know, you get a brief at some point in the future, but you want to do a good brief. Writing aloud, people watching what words go up on the wall, and my words going up on the wall? I feel so offended if they're not going up on the wall. What's all that about? So I mess with all those dynamics because if I'm running, if I'm running a workshop like that, I, honestly, I, I just got to the point where I'm like, this is my room. The number of times that I didn't think like that and it ended up to late nights or weekend work, uh, which is di it's definitely difficult when you're starting out and when you're younger. Okay, but over the time, I'm like, no, this is my room. You're serving me, and by me, I really mean us, and the us is whoever I'm joined at the hip with on this project, because we're going to have to go write this stuff. So I'm going to use this workshop as a way to get the stimulus out of you. This is about stimulus. It's not about the answer. And also, what's that idea anyway? The answer. Stimulus. Give me a bunch of thoughts. What do you think about icebergs? Oh, iceberg lettuce. You're into that? Cool. What's that got to do with anything? But the point is, you know, you kind of just bounce around. Uh, and obviously, the structure of a creative brief writing workshop can follow the structure of a brief. You probably need examples of good work, not good work. I mean, most of you probably have a deck that explains all this sort of stuff, so I don't know what to contribute to that at all, other than just to challenge and push back on the very idea of a creative brief writing workshop. So the main thoughts that I would, that I would argue for is that it can be a bit of a false construct, not very useful, can just be an exhibition of power and politics, but also I am okay with them if, if everyone understands that they're there for stimulus, it's going to get it out of them, that their name will be on this thing at some point, but it's not about having a winner. And that someone is going to go away and write the thing and that it could change and that the voice might get sharper. Because we're remembering what our game is, what our goal of the game is, to get to a good creative brief, which is actually the small game. The game is actually to do well for each other with the company with whom we're working. And maybe for other people, it's to be able to provide for their families because of doing that. I think that's all I'm going to do on the creative briefs. We are at about an hour. Uh, don't know if everybody listens this far in. <clears throat> I don't always listen to these back. It's kind of weird, but uh, maybe I'll type up that New York one. Like if a couple of you are like, yeah, you should do that. 
I will, because otherwise I'll just assume that, first of all, no one's listened this far because the start wasn't that interesting, or that maybe it wasn't very good. Uh, so I'm now just going to jump into Instagram and see what, photos, uh, what questions have been asked. I'm just going to read them out and go through them. I'll go through them pretty quickly. So there's a handful of questions here. Uh, when do you know it's time to move on? A different agency, a different city? I won't call the name out there just in case. Sometimes people ask or share really vulnerable things and I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's, should I put the name to that? Maybe not. Uh, I don't know, you, you get to decide that. <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with sticking around where you are and finding a new way to exist there or an old way to exist. I told myself when I left Sydney, had a couple of young kids then, and I said to myself, I want to do great work at scale and I really do appreciate in some respects a lot of the places I worked at in Sydney now and the operating system there back then at least you know sometimes people say it's changed but there are probably things that people are doing in Sydney that are difficult to do elsewhere because we're you know a little more irreverent I think to, to a mainstream lots of quips and put downs and one-upmanship one-downmanship that stuff's a little more out in the open some places are a bit more coded uh, and I had friends say, why are you doing that? It's really hard to make good work. And I've had friends who've moved here who've found the same thing. A lot of meetings, sometimes a lot of travel. And the travel here, if you're in a senior position, is like commuting. Where Sydney, I didn't do much business travel in 14 years, a couple of times. Maybe Taiwan, Melbourne a couple of times. I think that's about it. And, I, the, and the times have changed. People do move around more. Airfares are probably, maybe they're cheaper. More planes. We're more used to flying. And Aussies do fly a lot, but for work in the more junior roles. Uh, so that's why I moved and every winter is really difficult for me. You know, I think, I think the process that, or the shape of a year that I can move to now is that through winter, I'm just gonna try to use winter as a way to get deep into a creative project and try to find my uh, stability, my, my, my ground there, find myself there because the, the shorter days, and it's usually blue in New York, it's quite good actually, the shorter days, the darkness, the small living arrangements. Uh, look, I know a lot of people have life way, way worse. Um, I do have a, some kind of reaction to all of that. So you get to decide that. Um, when people move around, I'm, I can be a little cheeky. If, you know, in Nashville, I was having a chat with some people who'd moved there from somewhere else. And I, at some point, I'm going to say, what were you running from? Usually we're running from something and running to something. Neither of which we might even understand very well. And that's to take very traumatic things off the table when I'm saying that. Okay? I make those silly either or comments. It's in the, the spirit of, there's probably some positioning map and it's definitely in the quadrant of lightheartedness, things that we kind of kick ourselves for. It's not in you know, really bad stuff that can happen. So I don't really have a good answer for you there. Sorry. <laughs> What should be analyzed to make good comm strategy? G.S. Novikov. What should be analyzed? Well, the media, which channels people are using and, and how. You want to do that in an open-minded way. I, that's the other thing. I think a lot of us, when we're doing strategy, when we do research, we're too quick to get to the implication or to what we're going to do, as opposed to just leaving things open. So you might find channels, but you know what you could also find is like keep open the question, well, why aren't they in this other channel? Or are enough of them in this other channel that we're not prioritizing, that we could do something interesting in that we could share on the other channels? So that does require an open mind and holding it open in a way that some people might think is too long. Flexibility. 
So what are you looking at? You're looking at uh, the media channels that people use online and offline. Think offline too. Are they using community boards in shopping centers? It's very easy just to pump out the generic stuff that everyone else does. Then uh, how are people behaving in those channels? So with some of the social world, you get to which hashtags are most interesting and why? The why is important. Just don't, don't just get a list of hashtags together. Word clouds I don't find very useful. When I've done research, I've spent a lot of time on the social social networks, I just I trawl it and I'm looking for those phrases. Predictable, right? I'm looking for those phrases. I'll spend a couple of days and I try to work out a taxonomy. What are the types of phrases I'm hearing? And then if a phrase pops out, then I'm like, oh gosh, that's so interesting. I never thought about green trees like that before. I'm holding on to it. And I'm trying to find if there are other things like that because you can use quant to somehow get numbers to justify it or prove it or explore it further later. I'm looking for those interesting things. Uh, you also need to analyze the idea. So I do believe, uh, like, my, like my friend Julian Cole and many other people, especially a lot of the people who went through Naked, the Naked Agency, Kate Richardson, Farris, Matt Baxter, uh, a lot of good media planners. I really enjoyed working with a few of the media strategists or the, if that's the right word, at uh, Universal McCann in Sydney, Lauren Kassar, Tristan Burrell. Got to get all these people to have a chat with me soon. Um, that I believe in idea-led communications plans. So that's taking media planning. So there are two key interactions. Two, you know what? Three key interactions. One is you get a very short list of where might we appear? Where might this idea appear? You then analyze the idea that's come in. So the idea could be, if we go to that New York example, you choose one of those two that uh, everyone in New York's holding on to, living in New York's like holding on to an iceberg or yeah, New York will spit you out, but it'll spit you out like a phoenix and you'll be killer. You take one of those two ideas and then work out the media channels that could bring that best to life. So, you, and that means taking the loaded language. So spitting out like Phoenix, Phoenix are the media channels that, you know, eject people into the world somehow, metaphorically. And, and also maybe there are events that literally do that. Um, analyze, you also have to analyze which numbers you need. I mean, I, I don't think I've got anything super interesting to add there because to me the main thing, like we have all, I feel like a lot of the media plans I see have all that other stuff, but don't always honor the idea. That's my word for the day. Another one from uh, Wonder, well, sorry, Woman on Wonderlust. How do you approach a pitch when there's little to no category data available? Well, you interview people about the category. And you, it depends what you, if you're using that in a very specific way, and I've now made it more general. But you talk to people about their perceptions of the category. You could use card sorting techniques, get people to describe the category, what do they know, what don't they know, prompted, unprompted, consumer reviews, do mind maps, try to create your own little taxonomies. I hope that answers the question. Let's be a bit quick. All right. I did have a couple of questions. I don't use this phrase personal branding, but I get asked it a little bit. Like, what's up with you and personal branding? I get where the question comes from. It just feels like a cynical question, even though I can understand the intention, like the genuine intention in it. And so with, I don't know if, this is going to be interesting to that many people, but like with what I do, because I do a lot of these little drawings and I do treat it as a creative practice. So right now this is a creative practice. I actually think it's a bit of therapy as well. I feel connected to you. Uh, now, couldn't I get that connection with people in my family right now? Uh, well, they're kind of busy. They're doing stuff and often the people that we live with, they don't want to go into this. And that's probably why you're listening to this, let alone why I'm doing it. That's not to criticize anyone. We're just 
We're different. We attract different people into different things into our lives. So creative practice therapy, I feel connected in a weird way. I'm moving, I'm trying to make a point about moving and how moving and walking is part of my work and I hope some kind of moving is part of your work as well. And it's not that I'm coming from a morally superior place, deeply flawed human, trying to work it all out, just trying to improve. And sometimes take a few steps backwards, but just keep trying to improve. Uh, and then as far as, the as far as the personal branding thing goes, I, th I think, again, to not be cynical, is like, give yourself some creative constraints and think about the things you like to do. I've often drawn with pens. I was very bad at graffiti, really. But, you know, I played with some pens. I've drawn on walls, run workshops, would do shapes, put them up, just to help me understand. And often it's to help me understand things. And then I happen to do it at you, or you happen to let it be done at you. I don't usually shove it in your face and go, hey, look at this stupid diagram. Uh, you turn up somewhere and you're like, oh, she's doing that to me again. Um, black and white, drawings, a little absurdism. Sometimes you can't get away from jargon, just got to use it and play with it in a tongue-in-cheek way. And then really, I really do believe in contribution. Um, it's not, again, not to be... I don't like this whole thing of pointing out virtual, virtual signaling and vice signaling. I'm way better at pointing out my vice signaling. And then people are like, yeah, but that's because that's you can, because you're trying to show how virtuous you are. And at some point, all that stuff is just a mess. Just, just yep, you're saying everything. I'm doing everything, and you're smart for pointing it out. Congratulations. How's that to live in the world? Uh, but yeah, this sort of deathbed test that I do think about is, like, I, I don't know, I kind of want to help people who think for a living, not get stuck in their heads too much. It's a painful place to be. I've lived it, I've seen it, I go there, I go there every winter for a long time. And I do think there's a joy in what we do. It's difficult out there right now, doing this job, this role, having you listen to it, um, having people listen to you, they're super privileged things. And there's a joy to it when it works, and we just hope that it can work more often than it doesn't. And yet there are more meetings, there's more noise, more, more data. Are we doing better work because of it? Are we taking care of ourselves while we're doing it? Do we lose track of ourselves? You know, I caught up with uh, some students from SMU, Amber Benson, what's up, this week, and, uh, you know, one's, I don't know how old they were, sorry about that, like 19, maybe late teens, early 20s. One, is, one had been, uh, and SMU's based in Texas, right? There's a Fort Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth. Sorry if I got that wrong, um, block going on in my head. But, you know, one was talking about setting up a magazine or helping on, I think it was a school magazine. Another had been on a helicopter taking photos of New York City from a helicopter. And I just have to point the obvious thing out, which is I hope you're doing that in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years, 20 years' time. Try to, try to keep that stuff in your life. People will snatch it from you. Sometimes your partners will. Sometimes your boss will. Sometimes you just get caught up in the culture of the company you're in. You're like, what happened? I was standing here. I've got this little section in this book. In, uh, in my book, Strategy is Your Words, uh, which is about Mr. Potato Head and the idea of tethers. It's two chapters, actually. And how, you know, at some point in our lives, imagine yourself standing there at some point in your life and you're just holding all these colorful balloons. The strings are all these colorful balloons. And then someone, and you're outdoors, and you've got to go into a building, there's a door you've got to get through. And you just hope that those balloons get into the door. Now, if you want to call that, that room... It's whatever you're going into. It could be an office, it could be a career, it could be a relationship. And you go in and on the way the balloons hit the door and a couple of them pop. And then you're standing in this room and you've got to... It's just like a one-room building and you've got to get to the other end. Maybe that's 
whatever happens next. It's your Phoenix moment. It's going to spit you out. Uh, and there's, there's Mr. Potato Head, and he just distracts you and quietly takes the balloons away from you one at a time. And then you get to the other end of the room, and you're just standing there, and you're in gray, gray clothing, no balloons. And you're like, who am I? And then you have to remember the balloons that you're holding and find them again and blow them up. And remember what they stood for and hold on to them tighter than ever so that no one can take them from you. Oh boy, did this turn strange. Uh, I actually feel this very powerfully. Again, it could just be me projecting, but then I think I've, I've read enough. I'm like, these stories are really common, and hence the Phoenix uh, mythology. Returns, comes anew, more powerful, right? Right. This is a super long podcast. If you listen to it, let me know. I really appreciate you all listening to it. Uh, you can ask me. Um, you can ask me questions on Twitter if you like. I appreciate the encouragement. I know not everyone uses the different platforms. I do get more questions uh, on Instagram at Mark Pollard. It's the same for Twitter. I do my best to be honest. I try to speak from a place of truth and compassion. My aim isn't to win. I'll tell you that much. It's not to win. And I know strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. And I guess maybe if I'm actually being honest about it, my aim as far as winning right now is to be able to feed my family, doing the work that I love doing for people who I hope can contribute to the world in a more powerful way than perhaps they even realize, and to try to stay as sane as possible while doing it. Okay, hold me to that. All right, love you all. Peace.